what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the ACAST family. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. All right, tonight, the end of a story we've been covering for months. Dee Dee Moore will spend the rest of her life in prison. Hello, this is a prepaid call from... Therese Moore, an inmate at a Florida Department of Corrections institution. State of Florida versus Doris Donegan Moore. The defendant is guilty of first-degree murder. We buried the rest of his remaining money once he cashed it out. He moved the million dollars over. He buried it on one of my properties. But you buried a million so dollars in cash was, out the back of one of your properties. Uh, well, over that. Over that, yeah. Hello and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Now, avid listeners for the show will be going, hold on, what's going on? A week has not passed yet, why are we back? Well, I hope you're excited we're back because I am. And the reason we're back is because of the phenomenal response that the previous episode has had. We just released the unheard tapes from Doris Moore that create quite a few questions. There's one question in particular that keeps coming up. And it popped up for the first time. I've got to give a shout out to the True Crime Club members who are avid listeners of this show. And their biggest question, and a question I know a lot of people have got, is why were these tapes not used during Doris's trial? Well, here is Doris to explain. A lot of my videos, um, what happened was they went missing. When we went to use them for trial, we couldn't find them. I didn't get um, I didn't get my discovery till years and years later when I kept fighting for my DVDs. So finally, I don't know, I probably had been here over six, seven years. It's a horrible fight um, when you get convicted because then you have no way of defending yourself if you don't have a lawyer. So you have to fight for your uh, discovery to even um, defend yourself when you're innocent. So it makes it a lot harder. So I had to fight for my DVDs. Well, the videos we couldn't find were actually on a DVD behind other home videos of mine. So I found them, and the DVDs are of stuff that I had took. So Doris had some, but not all, of her tapes. Some of those tapes were played, 
but unfortunately not all of them were played. Now, I know people also have more questions to do with this case, and as we get the answers, I will bring them to you. As I said, I talk to Doris on a weekly basis, and she is keeping me updated with what is happening. But I thought we should get an expert's opinion on this case. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a bloke who talks into a microphone in his kid's toy room and tells stories, which is why I'm extremely excited to be able to say that I have an expert on board. Michael Leonard is a partner at Leonard Trial Lawyers over in Chicago, Illinois, in the United States. Michael has been a lawyer for well over a decade and tries some very big cases. In fact, he spends most of his time in federal court. So this man knows the law. And that's why I'm very excited to welcome him to One Minute Remaining. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Uh, so, Michael, look, first of all, thank you so much indeed for taking a part and being a part of uh, One Minute Remaining. I really do appreciate your time. Jack, I've been an avid, avid listener so far, so I'm happy to be on here. Fantastic. And that's good. I'm glad you're an avid listener because you would have heard uh, the Doris Moore story, which we're going to get to very soon because it's uh, it's an interesting case and it's certainly got a lot of twists and turns, um, but it'd be interesting to get your perspective. But what I want to start with um, is kind of the system as a whole, because I've said to you off air, I don't want anyone, I know we've got a lot of listeners in America and I don't want anyone to perceive me as an outsider looking in and, and just bashing the American legal system and saying, oh, well, this is all wrong. Look at them. They've got it wrong. Because I don't think anywhere around the world in any country we, we could say that that legal system, like, they've just got that perfect because there's, there's no such thing as a perfect system. But 
for instance, things I want to touch on with you is um, let's talk about juries. Now, jury trials are certainly, they are not exclusive to America. They're everywhere around the world. They've been around for hundreds of years. I think, in fact, the, the first one on record in, in the US was like the 1600s or something like that. So they've been around for a very, very long time. Obviously, speaking with Kim, the law clerk, another thing she brought out, which I thought was quite interesting, she pointed out the fact that you're being judged by this jury of your peers, most of whom would have no idea of the legal system, really have no sort of in-depth knowledge of the legal system. Um, so they don't know things like, you know, uh, circumstantial evidence and things like that, these terms. And, and as she says, a lot of these people, they've got lives. So she's got this good point that these people, are, they've got, you know, this person's life in their hands. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that take it very seriously, but there's still going to be a, a, this amount of people that just want to get it done and, and move on with their lives. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, talked about interjecting a wild card into the system. There are lots of countries that don't have a jury trial system. The idea, you know, is spawned from the notion that you can have a fair cross-section of the community who can evaluate you as, as a sort of peer, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, we all know from trying cases, I try a lot of cases here in the States, and uh, it's, it's probably the biggest wild card you could interject into the system because you're taking essentially, you know, 12 people off the street. You have a jury selection process that gets you to your 12, and then you're taking people from all walks of life, uh, and you're right, some of them who have, may have absolutely no interest in being there, don't want to be there, may have particular biases that were not disclosed during the jury selection process. And sometimes the cases are extremely complex. And so you're, you're asking juries to decide very complex issues, which maybe they're not really able to do. And then, you know, at the end of the case, something you haven't talked about at all, is typically they'll get a thick book of uh, jury instructions, so to speak, which are read out loud to them by the judge and then they take back to the jury room. And some of them in particular cases are really indecipherable to, to ask lay people to try to wade through the jury instructions and apply them to the facts is, is a pretty tall order. So yeah, the jury system is, is unique and uh, always uh, in our minds when we're trying cases because you get this jury and oftentimes you don't have much time to select them, particularly in federal court cases, you know very little about them and they're going to decide these monumental issues that are going to, really have a huge bearing on your client's life. Now I would imagine it's even harder <clears throat> when it comes to jury trials with the, the social media aspect of, of things and, and how readily available information is. Because I know that, you know, juries are instructed by, you know, the judges and that to, to not pay attention to any news or not Google anything like that. Uh, a number of the cases, the inmates that I'm talking to all had quite um, very high profile trials. They were in the news a hell of a lot the whole way through their trial and there was a lot said about them as people and that sort of stuff. So I, I also find it very hard to believe that you you can't police that. Like, you know, you say, don't you go home now and watch anything, but... Yeah, you're, you're right there. I mean, keep in mind one thing that, you know, most cases, the vast majority of them say, who knows, 95, 98, 99% of them garner very little publicity during mm. the case leading up to the case. There might've been a newspaper story about the case or, you know, sadly, in our country, it might be a, a run-of-the-mill murder case, which yeah. is pretty sad to say, but yeah. even a murder case may generate very little pretrial publicity. The cases you're talking about, which generate more publicity, it's, yeah, it's difficult to imagine that the people go home, they don't do any social media hunting, nothing on the blogs, you know, no conversation with friends. It's it's hard for me, me to believe that it doesn't really happen. Mm. It's very difficult to prove, to unearth that. I just had a recent case in federal court in St. Louis, Missouri. And in that town, our particular case got a ton of intention, meaning that, you know, you'd go home at night, 
after the end of the trial did the six o'clock news would be running stories about what happened in court that day. Yeah. To, to believe that people didn't see those news stories, weren't impacted by them is, is probably pretty far fetched, but you know, all the judge can do is remind them again and again, Hey, you're not allowed to go on social media. You're not allowed to do any independent investigation. Do I believe that doesn't happen? Uh, no, I, I think it's far-fetched to think that people aren't doing some research on their own. Should, should that give you cause then as as a, uh, a trial uh, lawyer to be able to turn around and say, I think this needs to be moved to a different state or somewhere where, you know, this isn't being sort of shown on TV and where we can do this, you know, properly and, and without, you know, this being being aired? Yes, you, you have some limited options. For instance, if you're in, in a state court, you could ask for it to be moved to a different county. You know, for instance, we're in Chicago, Cook County, and some high profile case, theoretically, you could ask it to be moved somewhere else. It's just hard these days because the news in all forms mm, is going to go into every county. Yeah. It's going to be a giant news story anywhere. In federal court, you know, we considered that very option that you're talking about in uh, our recent case. And then we looked at what the alternative was. And we thought based upon the racial makeup of the two jurisdictions and what we knew about the second jurisdiction that, you know, even if we got our wish, it wouldn't necessarily be a wish that we wanted. This whole TV news and stuff sort of folds nicely into something else I want to discuss. Now, this is moving towards more Doris's situation and her particular case. You probably would have heard if you were listening to the podcast, um, Mr. Grady Judd, the sheriff, um, he's quite a colourful character, doesn't mind the TV cameras. And uh, he, in fact, went on to a TV program before Doris was sort of even charged with anything. And he announced on that TV show that, that she was his number one person of interest. He wouldn't trust her as far as he could throw her. Did he get the right help? The help, the person that he thought was ultimately going to help him, the person that convinced him that she was there for his best interests, is Didi. Is she someone you can trust? I wouldn't trust Didi more as far as I could throw her. To me, looking at that, if I was to be like, obviously, again, I, I know nothing about the law, never been a lawyer, but if I was on Doris's team, I'd be saying, hold on a second, well, that completely ruins any form of a fair trial when you've got the sheriff of this county who's all over the TV saying, I wouldn't trust her as far as I could throw her. She's my number one suspect. He said, I, I believe she's guilty. That's it. Like, I don't understand how you, as a lawyer, you wouldn't argue the fact that, hold on a second, well, they're not going to get a fair trial here now. Well, first of all, Jack, I think I passed your test because I, I heard that part of that episode. So I think you were just trying to see if I was <laughs> yeah, really listening. Just checking. <laughs> but, but no, I did hear that. And I thought that was absolutely absurd that he was doing that. Mm. What he said, how he said it at the stage of the proceedings that he said it where no one had been charged. Uh, completely, number one, unprofessional, but also he certainly taints the potential jury pool against them. Uh, you know, the difficult thing about that is the, the people who are um, sort of hemmed in by rules and laws about not making those kind of statements are attorneys. You know, so for instance, a prosecutor or defense attorney sometimes can get in trouble by making too public of a statement that's designed to influence the jury. It doesn't happen very often where someone's uh, called on the carpet by the judge for that, but it's, it's a possibility. So Attorneys have to be worried about that. Sure. Um, people in his position don't have those kind of constraints, but it just does not seem professional in any way. And it's it's something that is pretty unique and rare. So when you played that uh, on your show and she was talking about that's something that hit home because that seemed just outrageous to me. Let's quickly discuss public defenders. Now, we, we did talk about this off air and it, this is no, no way wanting to, to attack public defenders or, or bash public defenders because, you know, as uh, Kim the Law Clerk has said, they're overworked, underpaid and, and they do work very hard. But 
it seems from an outset, unless you have money, obviously you, you're getting a public defender and then you're going to be like in Derisa's case, handed someone who's dealing with 150, she says, 150 other cases other than hers. I mean, to me, that's just, if I was to be in that position, I'd be like, well, that's it. I'm, I've got no, I'm, I'm going to jail. Like there's no way that I'm going to win any of this particular case. Well, there's a couple really good points that you bring up. Number one, there has been a chronic underfunding uh, problem in the United States and in various states and jurisdictions in terms of funding defense for the indigent, you know, people that can't pay for their own defense. So that's been a, a recurring problem. And of course, it's very difficult oftentimes to get additional funding for a public defender's office. Mm-hmm. That said, um, as we were talking about off air, the quality of representation can vary enormously. So you can be extremely fortunate to have extremely dedicated, talented public defender who's tried dozens of cases, is very court savvy, or you can get someone who's not, who has a huge caseload, who's inexperienced, and who's not really up to that challenge. So this idea that we can say, if you had a public defender, you got bad representation really is not true at all. In our system at the federal level, if you can't afford an attorney, you'll get appointed a a private attorney who's on a panel of lawyers in that jurisdiction. And I happen to be one of those lawyers in this jurisdiction. So I do get cases assigned for me from time to time, but they have a notion that if someone's giving me something, it can't be good defense. But clearly, if you have the ability to pay, you can hire expert witnesses, you can hire investigators, you can hire multiple lawyers, you can put a lot of time into the case that someone might not be able to do who's on their own, who's part of a, of a public defender's office that doesn't have those same resources. All right. The one point Doris mm. brought up that I heard, you you had kind of quoted her and I heard her say during the podcast that the attorney made the statement to her that's not our job to to prove that somebody else did it. Just that um, you didn't. You know, there, there, there may be a lot of nuance to that because I think the, the, the idea there was simply, you know, we, we don't have that great a burden of proof. We just have to prove the state hasn't proved you guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. We don't actually have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt who that person was. So there may be a little nuance to, to that statement, that conversation. Sure. So, Michael, the other thing that I find interesting is talking about these recordings while in court and how a lot of them weren't played. Here's Doris talking about that. Do they not play right. those in court? Do they not play right. the undercover recordings? No, they take whatever his word is on the stand. I don't even so know how that works. my lawyer is supposed to do that. So then my lawyer would rebut it and say, no, listen to this. This is what actually happened and was said. But when you deal with a public defender, they don't do any of that. Apparently, she's contending that, that she had the recordings, that she provided them to her, their, to her attorney, mm. that they were what's called exculpatory, meaning that they would have helped to prove her innocence. And apparently her contention would be that my attorney, despite me giving this exculpatory evidence, didn't use it in my defense, ignored it or didn't review it yeah. or wouldn't try to introduce an evidence. If that's her claim, that's very different. Yeah, that's what she's um, saying. And, she's saying that, that her attorney said, oh, we don't need that. Yeah. And that would be, you know, here's the, t- here's the difficult situation she's in. So she's in this appeal process where she's alleging ineffective assistance of counsel and unfortunately for her, the court gives a lot of deference to the attorney's trial strategy decisions. So anything that the attorney can say, look, I considered that, but I didn't try to use that because strategically, I didn't think that was a good idea. I didn't think it would help our defense. It wasn't consistent with their defense. 
any sort of thing that could be couched and sold as a strategic decision, the court's going to say, that's not ineffective assistance of counsel. That's an attorney using their judgment. And mm -hmm. so in our system, <clears throat> when you allege ineffective assistance of counsel, you have to, number one, show that the conduct of the attorney fell below a certain level. And sadly, the level that the court supplies is pretty low. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> and then, which which is unfortunate. Yeah. They're not holding it to what would the best attorney be or would we do it better? And then the second thing you have to show, if the, if, if the error wasn't present, if the attorney didn't commit that error and fall below the standard of care, would it have mattered to the outcome of the case or would there be a probability that it did? Mm -hmm. So she still even though she's gotten this evidence you're hearing, she still has a tall order to convince the court that it should find ineffective assistance to counsel and give her a new trial. Okay, Michael, let's take a look at uh, this DNA evidence. It's one of the biggest things that uh, has been approved in this new evidentiary hearing. Here's Doreese talking about it. She granted the DNA and her Second Amendment post. Senate alleges counsel was ineffective for failing to present reasonable hypothesis of innocence. She alleges there is a mixed DNA profile obtained from the carpet swab in the area where the state contends the murder took place. When you have DNA from another victim, from another person in the same room with the victim's blood, then that shows hypothesis of innocence because my blood is not in there. But another male non-Caucasian's blood is with Abraham's blood. My public defender should have showed the possibilities of a hypothesis of innocent of who this blood could be that it doesn't match what the state was saying happened because the state obviously said I killed him by myself alone. I think that sounds like a great issue. I mean, we don't know the full extent of the issue, but mm. if the if the basic premise is that the attorney was in possession of discovery materials, lab results that showed that there were other DNA samples or contributors and for whatever reason just either failed to review those materials and then failed to present them as evidence at trial that's the type of that's a type of mistake mm. that a court would more likely find to be ineffective assistance of counsel because there's really no excuse for not introducing it or trying to mm. and trying to argue the the interpretation of that because it's hard to hard to pass it off as a strategic decision and it's, it'd be interesting to know why the attorney didn't use that material so that to me sounds like a very promising issue for her because certainly it can be the type of evidence that could in probability affect the outcome of the case. And that's a big one. of the. I mean, DNA is a real uh, one that's uh, big on the minds of everyone at the moment because as, as we record this today, I mean, Adnan Saeed, one of the most famous podcasts called Serial, obviously did the full story on him. He uh, today has been basically uh, exonerated and, and uh, due to DNA evidence. Cheers from the other side of the doors drown out the city sounds of downtown Baltimore. This is the moment Syed heads home for the first time in 23 years. We come on the air. All charges have been dropped against Adnan Syed. This after he spent more than 20 years in prison for the killing of Haymin Lee. Yeah, DNA evidence is huge in our system. It's really kind of come to the forefront. I'd say beginning with the O.J. Simpson trial, in 1994 going forward. And I think the the good thing from a defense lawyer's perspective is that juries appreciate DNA. They think it's infallible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wanna see it. They wanna see it even when it's not necessarily relevant. Mm. Um, and I'm actually dealing with a case where I'm alleging that 
a client of mine had an effective assistance of counsel uh, because the lawyers he used in his trial, which was essentially an attempted murder trial, uh, did not have a gun that was that was indisputably the uh, object of, of the crime tested for prints or for DNA. And the attorneys in that case at the evidentiary hearing attempted to pass that off as a strategic decision, which I said was absurd. Mm. We're awaiting a ruling on that case. But yeah, DNA to juries is something that if you can interject the, into that issue as a defense counsel, you, you always want to do that. Okay, well, let's wrap this up on the on the last thing. The one thing that sort of um, blew my mind was when I spoke to Derese about this upcoming evidentiary hearing. As you said, that DNA thing's pretty strong, so there, there's every chance that she could possibly that the, the judge could turn around and say, "Well, we need to look at this further." There is also that chance that the prosecutors will say, "Look, this is going to cost too much money. It's going to take too much time," and come to her with a plea bargain. Now, she's told me under no circumstances will she ever take a plea bargain. If you were her counsel, if you were you know sitting with sitting next to her and she was offered a plea bargain to, to, you know, time served. What would your advice be? Would you say, look, I think you should take this because it's too much of a risk? Well, first of all, I, I did hear that episode of her talking about that idea that it might take too much time, too much money. First of all, the state is going to vigorously fight and dispute uh, this evidence and say that sure. it would have changed the outcome of the case. What they're going to say, I can predict at the evidence you're hearing is, look, judge, the evidence against her was overwhelming. That's what they're going to argue. I'm not saying that's true. Yeah. They're going to make the argument that, look, judge, there were 12 other pieces of evidence. And even if the attorney assigned to her screwed up and didn't introduce it, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the case. Mm. The evidence was overall overwhelming. So we're, we're very, we're very far away from the state saying, Hey, Too hard. you know, yeah. 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 And, and the state, the state doesn't typically do that, especially it would be egg on their face. Well, it look bad. Yeah, it's going to look bad on them if yeah. they suddenly turn around. So, so I find that a result extremely unlikely. Sure. However, you're, you're correct that if the court were to grant her a new trial, because that would be the relief she'd get, she wouldn't win outright, no. right? So <clears throat> the court could order a new trial. Um, most likely, the state of Florida would want to retry her because they've put so many resources into that. They've given the, uh, the, the case so much attention I think that their inkling would be to retry her unless they're convinced that the DNA is, is so crucial to the case that there's a chance they're not going to win. Right. Now, to your second point, you know, if all that happened and they came to her and said, gee, look, uh, you're right. The evidence looks like it, it may be somewhat favorable to you. Let's avoid the time and expensive trial and let's let's plea bargain. And they said to her, you can have time served. It's difficult to pass that up. Mm. Okay. I know, and you, you made some good points to her. You said, I think you said that's admirable. Mm. Uh, I don't know if I would do the same thing myself. Because, I mean, look, if you're going to take the risk of getting another life sentence or getting 20, 30, or 40 years, which practically means your life's over anyways, if you have children, if you have family, um, it's going to be a tough one not to suck it up and say, okay, I'll plead guilty. As distasteful as that is, as, as distasteful as it put those words out of your mouth because you think you're innocent, to take that risk and put all on the line, it very rarely happens. But all you can do is tell the client the probabilities mm. and the chance of winning a trial, and you can't make that decision for them. No. There are situations like Doris that I find to be, you know, a bit of an outlier, and uh, you know she hasn't had to make that decision yet. Yeah. So it's easier to say that when you haven't been presented with that option. So uh, hopefully she gets put in that position. You know, absolutely. 
Well, it has been uh, absolutely fantastic having you uh, weigh in on this situation, Michael. I really do appreciate your time. And I've got a lot of fascinating cases coming up. So if you would like to uh, to come back on, I would love to have you on to discuss a few more. That would be fantastic. And I got some tales to tell you, Jack, That's as awesome. well. And I, I apologize to your Australian audience about my horrible American accent. No, it makes it feel more authentic. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> A massive thank you to Michael Leonard, partner at Leonard Trial Lawyers, for joining us on One Minute Remaining. He will be a regular on this show now as we move forward uh, and discuss future cases. Speaking of which, get ready for the Kimberly Boone story. And as I yelled for him, somebody was coming at me, and um, he didn't make any kind of sound or anything. So I still had this gun on me, and I shot at him. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.